if you're starting a business, I don't think that registering a generic domain name is the, the best approach unless that registration of the domain name is you see it as an integral part of your business. But if not, you're going to be like going actually like an uphill battle to acquire distinctiveness to show that your domain name is the source of something that it's identifiable. You're going to have to invest a lot of money and resources in general for your name to become a brand. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law. Plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Hello and welcome to episode eight of the second season. On this episode, we're going to talk about trademarks and domain names. This topic is dear to my heart because once upon a time, My thesis in law school was about this very topic. And also, I have the opportunity to work for a couple of years as a domain name arbitrator. We're going to learn more with our guest. Let's welcome him. My name is Rodolfo Rivas. I am originally from Mexico. Although, to tell you the truth, I feel more like a citizen of the world. I don't know, like this is because I, I have been <laughs> fortunate enough to have an, an international career and meet people from every culture. And my life is pretty international. Like my wife is from Kenya. I've been living in Switzerland for the past 12, I even lost the count, like 12, 13, 14 years. My daughters were born here in Switzerland. I like to think of myself as a global citizen. My age, I'm 40 years old. And also regarding my profession, I guess I have to make some, I'm a lawyer by, by training. I studied law and I practiced law for many years. So that's like my profession, but I, I do more, much more than just being a lawyer. I do a bit of diplomacy, negotiation, arbitration, and I also write, directed a couple of films, and I also have my own podcast. So I don't know, like when people ask me, like, what are you? I, I Sometimes I don't even think of myself as a lawyer. It's a hard question to answer. What are you? Hmm. Yeah, many things. <laughs> yes. I'm a complex individual. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I think you are also the same way, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I completely understand. We have a similar background. I started as only a lawyer and then everything developed. And here I am in Washington, D.C. And who knows where I'm going to be tomorrow. So, yeah, that's the beauty of um, this path we took in the international forum. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. And it was not planned, but that's how it has worked out. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, unplanned things are better. <laughs> yes. And tell us how you arrived to Switzerland. So you were in Mexico. You started your life there <laughs> because you were born there. So how did you end up in Switzerland? What was the route towards uh, Switzerland? Yes. Uh, well, there's a long, a long answer and a short answer. I'll tell you like the, the highlight. So <laughs> I, I was in law school. I wanted to be a lawyer of intellect. Initially, I wanted to be a filmmaker, but uh, that didn't work out. Uh, so I went to law school and I thought that IP was the closest I could get to like a creative industry, like being a lawyer. So because of that, I went to Spain to do an LLM in IP. And that uh, that was a great experience. But the greatest experience of that is that it led me to Geneva. I was not really planning to come to Geneva. Like that was completely not in my plan. But I then uh, got this job at the, at WIPO working for the arbitration and mediation center. And that really got me like into where I am now. Yeah. So you started off in the World Intellectual Property Organization and then you kept on going and you still kicking it off in Switzerland. Yes. And, and actually, like when I got that job, it was supposed to be like a one year thing. 
Mm-hmm. Now it's been like 13, 14 years later. So I'm yeah. And let us focus on the topic at hand. Domain yes. name. What is a domain name? I'm trying to think of something simple to explain mm-hmm. it. Because it is simple, but I also understand that your listeners are perhaps not um, experts on this topic. Mm-hmm. So a domain name is how computers, how we identify com- identify computers or servers in the internet. So the way that computers normally would do it would be through an IP address, which is a string of numbers. For example, uh, Google, google.com. I think that the, the IP address is 8.8.8.8. That is a pretty easy address to remember. But there's other domain, other numbers that are a bit more complicated. So the way that they, the technicians who were handling this decided to address this issue is to attach, to translate those numbers to words, to letters, because humans understand letters better to remember. So the solution was to translate those numbers, those string of numbers, into something easier to remember, like 88888 for google.com. The domain name is basically the address of your website on the internet. Is that, is that clear enough? Yeah, that's perfect. Gives an illustration. <laughs> what is the relationship between the domain name and the trademark? Like I told you, the, the domain names is basically the way that you identify an address on the, on the internet, which just by that definition, it kind of reminds you of what a trademark is, because a trademark is the type of IP that is recognizable and identifies either goods or services. So in that sense, you could pretty much say that domain names are basically like the trademarks of the internet. That's how they are related. So they act as identifiers. The yes. Trademarks identify a product and a service and the domain name identifies a place in the internet. Yes. And actually, sometimes both of these can collide. Sometimes they're the same. Sometimes they're, mm-hmm. they're different. Sometimes a domain name can become like so recognizable that you identified it and it can become a trademark. And sometimes like when when companies like old companies that existed before the domain name system, the way that they did their presence, they, they had a presence online was through through domain names, identifying their business using their trademark through a domain name so that they would be available online. And I'm talking about businesses because we're talking about uh, trademarks, which are usually associated with businesses. But in the internet, like a domain name can refer to anything, not necessarily a business. Sometimes it can be like a, a non-profit community or a community mm-hmm. of uh, people, like uh, anything. Or a person or blog. It can be anything. Yes. Your yeah. your podcast, whatever. <laughs> and yours as well. <laughs> <laughs> So let's say that I own a trademark and I found out that there's a domain name with my trademark or similar to my trademark. What should I do? Let me go a bit back back into the history, because this was something that when when the domain name system was established, Mm -hmm. ICANN, which is the organization that uh, develops some one of its functions is to develop the policies on the domain name system. They have others, but this is the main one. They immediately recognize that there might be a conflict between trademarks and domain names. So the way that they decided to address this was to commission WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization here in Geneva, to prepare a report to kind of address this conflict and, and come up with a proposal on how to how to solve some of these problems. This report that WIPO prepared 
was the basis of what eventually became the UDRP, the Uniform Domain uh, Name Resolution Policy. So the UDRP was established in order to determine when a domain name can infringe on the rights of someone else. From the point of view, they mainly focused on, on trademarks, when domain names infringe trademarks. But that has evolved a bit, and it also depends on other matters that I don't want to go into detail because it can become a bit uh, complicated. But it's basically uh, for trademarks. And then eventually, many years later, uh, there was another process, the U URS, the Unif uh, Uniform Rapid Solution. Actually, I don't recall what it stands for, which is very similar to trademark. Uh, to the UDRP. It has its differences, but I mean, I just want to make it clear that there's the UDRP and there's the URS. So there's two routes to answer your question. That was like the pretty, a bit long explanation to answer your question. If you have a trademark and you feel that a domain name is being infringed upon by someone else, you basically have these two mechanisms, um, the UDRP or the URS. So the, the URS, which is the Uniform Rapid Suspension, that's the yeah, one. Uniform Rapid to. Suspension, yes. Sorry, I always get uh, confused with these acronyms. Too many acronyms. We, we use yes. too many. We use too many. <laughs> it's, it's true. <laughs> so as a trademark owner, I can either use the UDPR, which is the Uniform Domain Name Dispute Resolution Policy, or the Uniform Rapid Suspension, the U, uh, yes. URS. And so whenever whenever anyone registers a domain name, they mm -hmm. they have to sign whenever they click on it and they agree that they will be bound by these policies in case that there is a conflict. So that is basically like the legal way that you can go to the UDRP and the URS. Yeah, because we all know that everyone reads the terms of reference whenever you're <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> acquiring something online. It's true. And It's true. For those that who doesn't know, so when you're you're purchase a domain name, you you provide your consent to in case that something happens later, so there's a conflict. Someone is saying that you are infringing a trademark or their trademark, then you are bound to follow this procedure because you already agree uh, on it yes. when you bought the the domain name. Yeah, when you click through it, and maybe you don't read it, you you are agreeing to this. Yeah, and. <laughs> From a lawyer perspective, if you didn't read it and sign it, it's not our fault. <laughs> yes. Actually, yeah. by the way, do you read everything? Well, I did a study <laughs> a couple of uh, years ago, uh, but it was okay. for the purpose of that study. I wanted to, to learn about social media and intellectual property. So I read Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and it was uh, quite an interesting read. <laughs> but yes. in general, in general, the answer is no. No, no, no yes. one has time for that. <laughs> yes. And actually, I, I I think there was a new research that I actually didn't read it. I, I have it on my reading list uh, was focusing on how like usually whatever you do for like you say that you provide you, you get the services for free just by agreeing for it. But it actually costs more than mm -hmm. just simply giving your personal data or it argues that it's actually you're you're giving way more than you think that you're giving. And they're not only talking about personal data. So you're you're selling away your rights in a way. The, yeah. That's what they're Maybe even your soul. Oh Maybe no. Maybe even your soul. <laughs> <laughs> they got us. <laughs> yes. No, yeah, but, but, but really like it is true. Like uh, you should read it, mm -hmm. but like you also 
I mean, if you don't agree to these terms, it's basically you cannot use the service. And if you yeah, cannot that, use the service, you're basically outside of it. That's the thing, because uh, the platforms are usually, well, they're not unique, right? Because there are many platforms in different ways, but you either agree or don't. I mean, you're not obligated. You don't have you cannot to negotiate. Exactly. You, you don't have negotiate. to join, but you cannot negotiate the terms. Yes. And and makes sense. Makes sense. You want to play my games, you have to play by my rules. So, yes. yeah. And then you want to join because of like the social network effect. You have your mm -hmm. friends. They're like, how am I going to talk to my friends if they're all in this platform and mm -hmm. I'm not there? Yeah, I don't want to be cast out, <laughs> of course. Yes. And so let's say uh, coming back to 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 the example. So I'm a trademark owner. I learned that someone else is using my trademark in a domain name without my authorization. What path do I take to assert that right? And do I have to prove anything? So let's say it's the same if I have a registered trademark or, or if I have an unregistered trademark, meaning that I didn't take the extra effort of registering the trademark in my national office. Yes, uh, that's, uh, I think, the basic question. So whenever there's an infringement, you're a trademark owner. What, what do you do? So like I said, there's the two policies, the UDRP and the URS. Uh, for the UDRP, there are six service providers right now. WIPO is, is one of them and perhaps is the, the Rolex of the service providers. <laughs> Love I the am, comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I am more like a James Bond. I'm more of an Omega guy. But I see. I see. Else. <laughs> oh, I don't know if but, you know, but my husband is in the watch industry because it says. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah, I learned about watches with him because for me, my only knowledge was uh, a swatch, perhaps. <laughs> and that was it. Uh, swatch is the owner of Omega. Yeah, I know. But, I know. I learned. I did. I learned all that with you. Him. I, that. I, I, I never so used to use a watch before. I Now I have three. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. kind of addictive. Yeah, it is. It is. Is he a Rolex guy or an Omega guy? Uh, neither, actually. He has a Longim. Yeah, well, that's a great brand. Also. Yeah, well, yeah. This, 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 is, this is a great way to explain this. So like I mm -hmm. said, there are three service providers. Yeah. Like Waipo being like the most prominent, and they also played a role in crafting this policy. So they're the biggest one. But there's many others. You would have, if you have this issue, you would have to go to them to solve this issue and each of the service providers they have their advantages and disadvantages not specifically on what you have to prove like the udrp and the urs they're quite similar so i'm just gonna focus at the moment on the udrp but the, just so that you're aware there are some similarities the first thing that you have to prove is that you have a trademark and you had asked me if it needs to be registered in principle having a registered trademark would make your life easier But that doesn't mean that an unregistered trademark in some jurisdictions also has this power. So if it's a registered or an unregistered trademark, either way, you could prove that you have a right on it and that the right can be infringed. Once you prove that, you have to show that the domain name that is uh, that you believe is infringing on your trademark is confusingly similar or identical to your trademark. So let's say that you're talking about Coca-Cola. 
Coca-Cola as a trademark, one of the biggest trademarks that we have in the world. Maybe you're talking about Coca-Cola, but with two L's. In that case, you would argue that domain name that you claim is infringing on your trademark. It is confusingly similar to your domain name because there are similarities. This is mainly known as typo squatting. If you change a letter or you make a, like a small mistake that may confuse you, but it's similar. And that, that was one of the main reasons why the UDRP at the beginning was meant to address. Uh, simple type of squatting issues. Since then, these practices and uh, how domain names can infringe on trademarks has evolved, but type of squatting was uh, one of the first uh, issues meant to address with the trademark. Then you go on to the second element. The second element, you have to show that the, that the person who registered a domain name has no right or legitimate interest in a domain name. The policy, the UDRP, offers some guidance on what circumstances could show that the respondent has no rights or legitimate interest. Although the, the policy offers some guidelines, many instances can show what could uh, be someone having a legitimate right or a legitimate interest in, in the domain name. And the third element is that the domain name is not being used. Uh, it wasn't registered and being used in bad faith. Bad faith is also, there's some examples of it in the policy. And to better understand what can be equated to have rights, legitimate interest in the domain name on, on part of the registrant, the one who registered the domain name, or bad faith, you can look at the policy, but you can also look at a resource, the WIPO, uh, WIPO has, it, they have an overview. They call it the overview 3.0, I think, on selected panel views, which kind of addresses like the jurisprudence of the domain name cases since since its inception. Although the jurisprudence is not like in the sense as a jurisprudence that you would understand, like legally speaking, it's not binding. It does offer some cases where a large majority of panels and it has been accepted that that's like the basic understanding of, of it, how they understand certain issues to offer certain predictability for the users of the policy. So, for example, in, if... Uh, they register the domain name and they want to sell it back to you. And that's the only use that they're doing. And they want to sell it to you way more expensive than what it costs. That could be construed as uh, bad faith. The UDRP and the overview establish some of these uh, circumstances. And it, if you want to get a bit more of information on it, I highly recommend it as a resource that you can use to understand what all these three elements mean. The first element is the easiest, I think. Although there are some issues also that could happen, if, for example, the domain name was registered before the trademark or some of these issues that may be a bit more complicated. But I think that the, the meat of the discussion for UDRP come more under the second and third element. That is uh, lack of legitimate rights and the bad faith. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Uh, let's say that I'm a trademark owner and the domain name registered, the person who registered the domain name, he or she or they are known for that uh, particular identifier, that they had a business that is based on that identifier that com comprises the, the domain name. In that case, would the trademark owner prevail or would the domain name holder prevail? Um, but you're just talking about uh, being identical. Um, let's say the confusion is similar. Let's say that it's, um, the word is paper. 
the trademark is yes. paper. And the domain name, it's called greenpaper.com. And the green paper people are known for this uh, domain name. They have been doing business for some time and they're not doing it in a way to either prevent paper trademark to do their business or they're not trying to sell it back to paper. They're just living their life trying to go ahead with their business. Yes. Well, in this case that you're talking about, there might be another complication about the mm -hmm. generic term. Was that on purpose or, or we are... We're not addressing that. Well, we can address this, of course. It's open. It's open floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, because this reminds me the recent Supreme Court case, uh, Booking.com. So, I mean, do you, do you want me to talk a bit about this? Yes, please. Please do. Please do. You can explain a, a so, bit of, of the facts as well. Booking.com case was, it was a recent case. I think it was actually one of the last decisions where Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually participated in. It's relevant because of that, but also because it, it's considered like a landmark case in domain names and trademark law. It was actually one of the WIPO panelists who was representing Booking.com. He's like one of the leading IP lawyers, and he was also in, involved in the crafting of the policy. David Bernstein. It's actually a guest in, in my podcast, if I can plug in the that for your yes, listeners. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> you can tell us the full name of your podcast, please. Yeah, in my podcast, the Rodolfo Rivas Project, uh, I talked to David Bernstein. I actually don't discuss this because I, although it probably the case was happening at the time, like the decision had not been issued, so we didn't discuss that. But the interesting case, of, the interesting matter about this is because booking.com is composed of a generic term, booking. Booking is not not something that you can clearly identify like Google, for example, or Yahoo, something that it's more identifiable. You hear those words and, and you clearly understand that it's a brand and it represents something. Booking.com is a generic word. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, they had like this, this rule that whenever a domain name, whenever there was a registration for a trademark that used a generic word like Booking.com, it would in immediately disqualify it as uh, as a trademark and that was the basis of the case uh so they went all the way to the supreme court to determine if if in fact booking.com was should have been disqualified from being a trademark and uh, the lower court when they when it got to the supreme court the lower court said that yes the supreme court actually said that although the word the generic word booking.com is generic combined Booking.com and the way it's used, it had acquired like certain secondary meaning and it was clearly identified by by the users, by by the general public to be a trademark. Like whenever anyone heard booking, like the, the, the consumers, the public, booking.com, they didn't think it was a generic term. They saw it as a trademark. And that was ba that's basically the test, the consumer perception if a generic term should qualify as a trademark. This is all nice for the case of booking.com. So now there's no rule from the U.S. Patent Office that they should automatically disqualify generic words of being potentially trademarked. But if you're talking as a lawyer, I wouldn't recommend if you're starting a business. I don't think that registering a generic domain name is the, the best approach unless that registration of the domain name is you see it as an integral part of your business. But if not, you're going to be like going actually like an uphill battle to acquire distinctiveness, to show that your domain name is the source of something. 
that it's identifiable. You're going to have to invest a lot of money and resources in general for your name to become a brand. So unless it's like something that you really want to do, I would recommend register something that it's identifiable and unique to you. And this is why like most of the startups, you see them, they have like these short, funny names that you, it's like sometimes they sound a bit weird, but that's precisely because of these, like they, they want to become unique and understand that like, like the consumer understands that these represent the brand. So that was on the generic domain name. So in your case, I don't know if you were addressing this issue. It seems that in your case, although the, there's a confusing similarity, the registrant of the domain name, Green Paper, was not really using it in a bad faith. So if that's the case, it could possibly be that the complainant filing a dispute of the domain name could not satisfy the third element. And in that case, they wouldn't be successful. It wouldn't be the case if it's, let's say, trademark, it's paper. The domain name is paper. And the domain name holder is trying to sell it to you for a couple of thousands. In that case, what would happen? This is actually one of the circumstances contained in the policy as examples of bad faith within the meanings of the, of the policy. So in this case, assuming that you succeeded, because there, there's three elements. So it's basically like mm -hmm. you have to go through all of the three elements. So first you identify that it's confusingly similar. If that is uh, successful, then you move on to the second element. We would assume in this case that the registrar the domain name doesn't have any rights on, on the legitimate on the on legitimate interest on the domain name uh, the person is not called uh, green paper they don't have any trademark <laughs> any right uh, any legitimate business on this they don't have mm -hmm. any agreement with the complainant they don't have anything they don't show any evidence that they are they have any other rights so then you would succeed under the second element and then you will move on to the third element to determine if the respondent is using the domain name in bad faith. And like I said, in this case, the respondent is clearly trying to sell it back to the respondent in excess of their pocket cost is one of the conducts considered bad faith. So in this case, yes. Mm -hmm. And when you are evaluating a trademark versus a domain name, if they're similar or not, do you take into consideration the content of the website? Yeah, that's a good question. So for the first element, which is determining if the domain name and the trademark are identical or confusingly similar, you don't take this into account. But I think that this is more of a technicality. Like if you're talking about succeeding in a in a UDRP case or a new URS, uh, the, the content of the website may become relevant to the second or third element. Although it's not really, it shouldn't be taken into account uh, for the first element in general. In some instances, it, it could have a bearing, but it's usually when it comes to the second and third element and most likely in the third element when it relates to bad faith. So if, for example, the website, the trade dress of the website uh, hosted a, in a domain name, tries to replicate the content of the website that they're trying to infringe upon. Like, let's say that they uh, it's Coca-Cola and then the, the website is trying to sell T-shirts with Coca-Cola and they replicate the brand and they replicate like the trade dress of the of the original Coca-Cola website. Then in that case, it would be considered bad faith. And the, the content of the website, them trying to, to mislead the internet user is where it would become relevant. And I've seen an evolution like towards more sophisticated cases where sometimes they register a domain name. They just register the domain name so that they can have an email that they can send thousands of emails to 
unsuspecting internet users. Sometimes these come from, for example, banking institutions, financial institutions. And then the, when, when you get the email, you look at it and from like for sometimes when you look at it from, from your phone, the email looks the same. Like the, the, the address looks like legitimate. Mm -hmm. So you look at the email address and you say like, ah, yeah, this is from my bank account. And then you click on it, then you provide sensitive information and then they can withdraw your bank account. So now they're taking a more sophisticated approach, a more active account. You don't even have to go to their website. They come to you. <laughs> so nice of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When you're using a domain name for illegitimate purposes, it's a gateway because from there you can trick the audience. You can trick the consumer thinking that you are a legitimate business. You are the, the company you are impersonating. Uh, and then everything happens from there. People trade uh, counterfeit goods. They take on your personal information, your banking information. I have seen cases that, like, as you said, that it's not only the email, then you click on that and you go to a website that looks exactly like the website yeah. from, from your bank. And you, and you don't have any reason to believe that it's not so the website it. of your yeah. bank. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's, it's something, it's, um, it's also a, a way of protecting us as consumers. Yes. And like I said, like, because I remember like, like when, when you would talk to businesses about this, uh, this potential risk for them, they would say like, I'm oh, no, I'm not, I'm not big enough. I shouldn't, like, I don't have really a, like a big internet presence. Like I'm not really interested, but now actually like you don't even have to have a big presence. Like it could even be that you're a service provider. You, mm -hmm. you don't even have a website. And then like someone uh, uses a domain name to impersonate you as your business to, for example, claim uh, invoices like past invoices. So you should be aware. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't matter if you have a big internet presence or you should be aware that you're, you could be affected even if you, if you think you're not. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And now uh, let's turn the table. Let's say that the domain name holder found out that someone else register a trademark of their domain name. They're using the domain name for legitimate purpose. They're running their business and someone else registers the trademark in their favor and then tries with this registration, they try to take down the domain name. That's um, an interesting case. Let's uh, go at it by part. So Registering a domain name doesn't give you any rights. Uh, domain names can be registered in first come, first serve basis. So if you register that domain name and assuming that you don't infringe anyone's rights, you, you have that domain name. And in some cases, even if you infringe, if there's no procedure to, to take it away, you have that domain name. You're the owner of that domain name. The domain name is first come, first serve, and it doesn't give you rights. But like I mentioned in the case of booking.com and in some jurisdictions, domain names If you use them in the course of business, it could be that becomes uh, a, what is known as a common law trademark. And if that's the case, if that if you've been using Lee actively and you can show uh, that use and you can show you can show that the consumer recognize that as a trademark, you could eventually get a, a trademark. So in that case, assuming that that this is a case that you eventually would show rise, if someone registered as a trademark. You could file an opposition in that case, saying that you are being, you've been using this name for five, ten years. In some cases, it can be longer because some some small businesses don't even they register the domain name, but they never register the trademark, assuming that they will get some rights. But they could show that they've been using it in, in the course of business. They could have a successful opposition, 
but looking at it from the point of view of a domain name, if someone registers a domain name and then they they go after you saying that you infringed on their trademark, which was uh, registered after the domain name, there is no like uh, cut rule that if you register the trademark after, you cannot uh, go for a domain name. It, it would usually be the case, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. So you would have to show that, that the person who registered the domain name was actually targeting you. And was uh, like meaning to take advantage of of your brand, even though if the brand was registered later. Um, Rodolfo, thank you, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for letting us dive in into this domain name internet pool of trademarks and IP. And please um, give us the full name of your podcast so anyone who's interested can can also search uh, for you uh, and learn about the, um, the great work that you do on your podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Leticia. It was an interesting conversation. Thank you for the invitation. Domain names are increasingly becoming a, a more important business that you should be aware. And I think that they should be more information available for about this so i think that you're doing a great job every every year the domain name cases keep increasing and every year there's they're breaking the number of cases as before and i don't see this tendency is slowing anytime soon and uh, regarding my podcast if anyone is interested uh, it's available in all major platforms you can just look for the Rodolfo Rivas project sometimes we also touch into domain names because that's like an aspect of what i do but it We also mm -hmm. talk about many other subjects. Yes, um, be sure to check it out. It's very interesting. And you also have very interesting guests. So it's, it's, a, it's a good way to spend a few minutes of your day. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Thank you, Rodolfo. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Goodbye from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.